very special episode of the Drama League's digital series. I'm Artistic Director Gabriel Stelian Shanks, and I hope you've been enjoying previous episodes at dramaleague.org, or wherever you find your podcasts. This week we're offering something a little different, a peek inside the Drama League itself, and our programs that help stage directors as they face important issues in the American theater. Each year, our directing fellows are offered a series of meetings with prominent industry leaders, renowned artists, and arts policy experts, turbocharging an emerging director's career and network. During this year's pandemic, these meetings, as you might guess, are occurring socially distanced and online, but they have been no less meaningful or powerful. We were excited especially to face the pandemic head on. And a few weeks ago, we were humbled to introduce our 2020 directing fellows to Dr. Matthew Freeman, Associate Professor in the Department of Microbiology and Immunology at the University of Maryland School of Medicine. Dr. Freeman is part of the teams developing promising candidates for a COVID-19 vaccine and offered us a first-person, boots-on-the-ground window into the progress in America's battle with the coronavirus. We are overjoyed that he also agreed to let us share our discussion here. Not only does Dr. Freeman give his view of where we are in the search for a vaccine and its eventual distribution, he also offered his opinion about the needs of theaters, identifying with stark clarity the real obstacles we have in returning to live performance. Some of the facts he shares, frankly, are hard to hear, but we in the theater know that knowledge is power and a search for the truth is the only path to move forward. Joining Dr. Freeman are the Drama League 2020 directing fellows, Christina Angeles, Signe B. Haraday, Taylor Haven Holt, Kate Robinson, and Emma Rosa Wendt. The conversation is facilitated by the artistic line producer of the Drama League, Ali Sky Bennett. We hope you find this conversation informative and a first step on the path to the theater's eventual return. As you listen to the episode, if you'd like more information on theater and COVID-19, you can visit our information center packed with articles, studies, and more at dramaleague.org. Enjoy listening. Good morning, everyone. I'm so excited to welcome you, our 2020 Drama League Fellows, um, and introduce you to our special guest today, Dr. Matthew Friedman, who is the Associate Professor at the Department of Microbiology and Immunology at the University of Maryland School of Medicine. Hi, Dr. Friedman. Thank you so much for joining us today. Good morning. Happy to be here. So why don't you talk to us a little bit about what you do and what you've been doing um, insofar as COVID-19. First, I'm really happy to be here. I'm happy to share any kind of information I can about this virus. Um, I am a virologist, so I work, and I work on coronaviruses even before December of last year. Um, I've been working on, on coronaviruses since my postdoc in starting in 2004. Um, and then now I've been here at University of Maryland for 11 years now. Uh, again, working on SARS, the original SARS, which emerged in 2003 and then MERS coronavirus, which emerged in 2012 in the Middle East, and then now continuing to work on SARS-2. And so um, what my lab does is uh, we really specialize in working on these viruses, both analyzing how they grow and how they replicate in cells, and then also um, using animal models to study how they cause disease, and then how can we test therapeutics against these viruses. So um, uh, I guess the short version of what we've been doing in the last seven months is uh, essentially not going home very much. Um, and really trying to figure out, uh, working with a lot of companies on vaccines and drugs and antibodies um, to really develop therapeutics that are going into trials right now. So um, we worked with a company called Regeneron, which is in New York City, just outside of, uh, <coughs> outside of Manhattan, um, on an antibody. That's in phase one trials now. That paper's already out. Um, 
We have a, a vaccine paper, which uh, will be revealed this afternoon. Uh, we did already did the animal work uh, previously, and the phase one data comes out today. Um, uh, working with a large, bunch of drug companies as well. So this is our job right now is to facilitate testing uh, and development of ideas of how we can treat this virus and, and um, get both my kids back in school and then your theaters back open again with uh, the population being sick. And from what I understand, you have also like consulted on some uh, films and other, okay. other artistic ventures, haven't you? Yeah, so one of my favorite things is uh, there's an association called the Science Entertainment Exchange, uh, which is uh, run by the National Academy of Sciences in DC, and they have an office in LA. Um, and their job is to, uh, well, their, their mission is to connect with writers and filmmakers and, and directors in um, TV and film and theater to uh, get as much science into their real products that they're making as possible, knowing that there has to be some movie magic along the way. But um, I've worked with a variety of, of writers and directors trying to make their story feel more real and more sciencey and get a little more words and what it looks like to really work in a lab into their um, films. So uh, I did a bit with Planet of the Apes and um, there's one filming right now called Songbird that just wrapped up in LA. I helped them with their work as well. Um, and a variety of things over the years. So it, to me, it's super fun to be able to take, uh, I'm, I love movies and TV and theater. So to be able to take what I do in the lab kind of out to the public was at a, at a little, little bit of time, it's been super fun. So um, uh, that's one of my favorite things outside of working in the lab to do. Nice, I'm sure you have so much free time to do that. Tons, tons of free time now. Um, so with our industry shut down at the moment, we're months away from beginning to restart live performances. So in your opinion, what would we need to do to prepare to welcome audiences back to our space from a health and safety standpoint, as well as like all the work that happens before we welcome an audience and, um, you know, for the artists in the rehearsal room? Yeah, so I think that, um, so it's a big question, but I think that there's, uh, I think all of the same things that we're talking about for schools opening up and, and requiring their business opening up again are really the same kind of concepts that you need to think about in theater. Um, uh, and it's all the things, you know, honestly, I'm gonna tell you all the things you already know in this bit. Um, you already know that, that everyone should be social distancing, everyone should wear a mask when, they, uh, when they're outside or, or in close distance to each other, especially inside. Um, uh, you already know that if someone has symptoms, they shouldn't. They should be tested, or they should go home. Um, if they are, uh, if you are around someone who is tested positive, then you need to be tested and, and self quarantined until you're able to um, to know you're clear. Um, I mean, all of these things are the standard things that that we tell everyone in the community now to do. All the public health officials are telling everyone. Um, uh, I think that extra things that so I'll, those are all the general things, right? That just regular public health um, awareness that we need to have for this virus. Um, I, the 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 for the other thing that's really important, I think. Well, two more things, I guess. One is that the really strange thing or, or unique thing about this virus in the context of the other highly pathogenic coronavirus, about SARS and about MERS, is that for SARS one and MERS, um, if you got infected, you were within 48 hours, you were symptomatic. And so you got sick. And so everybody who was sick was, who had symptoms, you know, regular cold symptoms, was quarantined, and then they were separated from everyone else, either separated at home, or if you got really sick, you went to the hospital and you got quarantined there. Um, 
for this virus, COVID-19 or, or SARS-2, um, it looks like a seasonal coronavirus. So every winter, we get a, we, you can get infected with a coronavirus. There's four other coronaviruses that give you a common cold during the winter. I know no one really knows these things, but they're out there. But like flu and rhinovirus, coronaviruses, adenoviruses, all give you very, very similar overlapping symptoms during the winter. Um, and so one of the, the hallmarks of those is that you are, if once you get infected, you have an incubation period before you really show symptoms. So five to seven days before you actually have cold symptoms. And um, normally in those viruses, it's self-resolving. You get runny nose, you feel kind of crappy, and then it goes away. Um, flu can be much worse. It feels like you get, you know, if you get a really, if you do actually get infected with flu, it feels like you're hit with a truck for a week and then you get better. Um, for this virus, it's not as lethal as SARS-1 and MERS. So SARS-1 is a 10% lethal, MERS is 35% lethal, but luckily both SARS-1 is gone um, from the environment. MERS is still spreading in the Middle East, but it doesn't spread very well person to person. So this new virus is kind of the like a weaker Goldilocks version of those things. It doesn't kill as many people, but it spreads very well, just like a seasonal cold virus. Um, uh, but again, you don't show symptoms until really five, four to seven days after you're infected. So, and you can be spreading virus. It's very clear you can be spreading virus during those times. So this is one of the big public health problems that you're gonna have to deal with, that we all have to deal with, is that um, you don't know if you are infected yet, um, and you could still be spreading it to your friends and family and other people around you, especially in closed buildings. Um, so this is the big problem we all have to deal with. I mean, you guys have to deal with is, how to manage that inside of a theater um, when people could be coming in sick. Um, and masks, ventilation, distance, you know, all those things can be really important for limiting that contact and that spread inside of a, a theater or any kind of, you know, school or business that way. Um, the other thing that's really important as well, which isn't really talked about as much on the kind of public health side, but especially when I was thinking, talking to Ali before, thinking about what it is like when you're when you're um, you're practicing and you know be rehearsing, um, uh, and the things that we actually do in my lab all the time is we have a medical monitoring plan. So every day that we take our temperatures, um, we record our symptoms. If anyone is sick, uh, whether it's a sore throat, runny nose, cough, fever, um, and then if we have anything, we stay home. Um, and while I realize that the you know the verbiage of theater is you know the show must go on and you have to show up whether you're not feeling good or, or, or you know, even if you're not feeling well, um, those kind of things have to be minimized as much as possible, um, where you really minimize the amount of people, but you have to, the, the, the lab, you know, my lab knows that if you're not feeling well, I don't want you here. If you're not fired, no, everyone will cover for you. You know, it's not, you have to just make sure you're better. And, you know, especially right now, we did this before COVID, but even now you have to go and go test it. Um, but uh, you have to be willing to, um, the, I think from a top-down approach, you have to be willing to make everyone comfortable with the idea that it's okay to stay home if they're not feeling well. Um, and that's really a really important point that I think is missed on a lot of the, the um, public health side of these things because people haven't been at work, so it hasn't been a big deal. But now that people are coming back, if you're not feeling well, you have to be comfortable staying home. Um, and it has to be kind of a top-down approach that everybody has to be communicated. There's no um, ill will. No one is is uh, penalized for being at home. You don't get in trouble. It's just really important that you don't spread anything to anyone else around you if you can stop it.
And so in addition to all the standard public health side of things, I think that is really important, especially, you know, I would, you know, I don't know how big your shows are, uh, the play, the, the, how many cast members you have, but you, you have to minimize, you have to block this off, um, you know, basically create a bubble, a sense, uh, either a, your pod of people that are in there to make sure they don't contact anyone outside of their little pod or even in themselves to make sure that they're protected. Uh, we often call directors like the captain of the ship, um, but more often than not, these directors have been hired by theater companies, so they are not necessarily uh, at the top of that food chain um, with the, the uh, authority to make decisions about canceling performances or replacing cast members and that kind of thing. So what can directors do to advocate for their artists, for themselves, for somebody who is not feeling well um, in the context of a larger organization where they might be working? I mean, I would hope that in the context of where we are now, that is understood that someone needs to be able, they have to be able to stay home if they're sick. I, the worst, you know, I, I would hope that going up, I guess, from the director's side, the communication should be the worst thing you want is for your theater to be associated with an outbreak. And then to come out that, oh, you know, the actress or the actor knew they were sick and they still were told they had to go, right? That is the worst case scenario, I would imagine, for any business, let alone a theater. It's going to, I mean, it's going to happen on Broadway. So, you know, someone's going to open up. Um, and there's going to be a positive case, and it's going to be associated with that theater. Um, you just don't want it to be you. So uh, I, 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 I certainly don't want it to be my lab if someone is sick here and they infect everyone else. Um, so I, I think that, that would, it, it, you know, if there's, I guess if you can spin it as a PR or monetary factor, that uh, it's better to, to not be associated with this virus if possible. Um, you know, that would be the better thing. I know, I certainly don't know how that communication food chain works uh, in your business, but um, I would hope that that would at least sell the point that, you know, this is all, you know, all press is not good press in the sense of this virus. Yes. Um, we've seen some companies coming out with things like thermal scanners for detecting the virus or UV tents for disinfection um, in the context of an audience entering a theater. Uh, how reliable are these, are these uh, inventions? And um, is, are, the, are they things that we can be implementing now? Not now, now, but you know, before yeah. pre-vaccine, once things are open again, and you know, perhaps before there's, there's mass uh, you know, immunity or antibodies, um, you know, how, how safe are, or how reliable are these um, for us to begin the work? So none of these is 100% is effective. So, um, you know, as many of these bits that you can layer is gonna be a positive feature. And as many people you can catch that, you know, come in with a fever, um, I don't know how you tell them they can't come in. I guess you, you have to sign a, a something when you buy a ticket that says these are the rules, and if you break these rules, or we, you know, we're going to have scanners up or whatever, that is that is a problem. I mean, they, then they can't come in. Um, uh, but I mean, people, the, the, you know, so every one of these steps is going to be important: masks, social distancing, um, hand washing stations, even air filtration. I've, I've seen reports lately that a lot of school district districts are putting are buying air filtration systems to put in the classrooms to kind of help spread, help uh, minimize the droplets that spread. Um, uh, and so all of those things are never 100%, but you can layer these percentages on top of each other. Um, 
for the for the the thermal scanners, you know, people are positive and spreading before they show symptoms. Um, but if you catch someone who is symptomatic and they don't maybe they don't realize it or they don't care or they still want to come to the play, you know, these are extra bits that you can protect your, your you know your uh, people inside the theater with. So, um, you know, I think yesterday I saw I think it was the Denver Broncos. They when they come on the field now from training, they go through a mister that's supposed to disinfect them. You know, does that work? Maybe. Um, I mean, I'm sure it's disinfected at some level, and uh, you know, so it's minimizing the contact of droplets that are on their body. They're not breathing it in and decontaminating their lungs with this. This isn't how this works. Right. Um, but every one of these little steps is going to help. Um, uh, and and so you can't. I, there's no way to say one of them is the best. But every, I think layering all these approaches is really the best way to go about it. Is there any danger of uh, these air filtration systems recirculating contaminated air, or is that not really a thing? As large as these rooms are, generally, you know, the the more that you can disperse this aerosol around, the actually better it is to to um, dilute that that you know if someone is coughing, you know, in the fifth row of a twenty theater, a twenty row theater. Um, uh, yes, the person in front of them will get the brunt of those coughs, but the more that you can disperse that aerosol in the air um, and dilute it and dilute it out is a better thing. Um, the, uh, what hospitals, some hospitals are using now is uh, is um, ceiling facing UV. So there's light, there's UV lights you can put on the that face the ceiling, so they're not down or harming anyone. They're really powerful UV that face the ceiling, and as part of that, you actually need air circulation to get the air flowing above the UV lights. To disinfect it as it goes. Um, so actually, a lot of these kind of a lot of airflow is really important. So you you dilute it out as you go. I mean that's really why being outside is much safer than being inside um, because you spread the you spread all these aerosols in a much larger uh, you know volume than you know being in a small room. I mean I, one of the most dangerous places to be is in a small contained room with no ventilation when someone is positive. So as much as you could do to displace all of that, that air and increase uh, airflow is only a, only a bonus and only gonna help. Mm -hmm. um, we've heard a lot of talk about, um, you know, on Broadway and commercial theater, how like a socially distanced version of Broadway is not economically feasible, but for us working in nonprofit theater in downtown, um, that's not as, as much of a concern. So from a health standpoint, is a socially distanced audience a, a real thing like are we fooling ourselves into thinking that we can we can hold performances for 10 people sitting six feet apart uh in an auditorium that's been cleaned or is this sort of pie in the sky idealism i think it's just a hard i, I think that every room is going to be different um so i don't you know i, I think that there there are engineering challenges to all of these kind of spaces so every space is unique um, again, it really depends on airflow. Um, you know, if it's a, I don't, I mean, if you have 10 people, but it's really a hundred per hundred, normally a hundred people, um, and there's 10 people sitting in the audience, um, you know, spread out six feet apart, you know, eight feet apart, um, with the regular, you know, without changing anything else. So like maybe they wear, people wear masks and you do thermal scanners, but you're not really changing airflow. I realize there's limiting cost as pricing as well to dealing with all the extra things that you might, I might be saying are easy to do in a hospital, but really difficult to do in a, you know, community theater or, or you know, uh, uh, not a huge giant Broadway show. Um, but as many of these things are, are 
are are useful. Um, and I, I think I, I, there was a I can't remember where I saw the article over the weekend, but there was some I think it, I don't know if it was in New York, but there was some show that was doing twenty five percent capacity, um, and the idea was that they're going to lose money. You can't do a show for twenty five percent, but I guess the point was that we have to start somewhere. And if you can show that you can do it for a period of time at 25%, um, then you can start scaling up from there. You can learn what works and what doesn't work uh, for how to actually run a show at that you know, lower level of people there. And so um, I think it is totally possible to do, but I think you have to layer on the other kind of measures. You can't just not do anything else, but just have 10 people instead of 100. Right. At least that, yeah, that's my piece. Um, I would love to open up the floor to our fellows if anybody has any questions they'd like to ask. Feel free to just raise your hand or unmute yourself and jump in. Yeah, I would love to ask a few questions. Thanks for being with us. It's really helpful to have someone knowledgeable to be able to talk to. Um, I'm thinking about um, what you were talking about in terms of airflow and also um, being outside and wondering about um, what is really outside if um, in terms of safe distancing for both audience to each other as well as audience to actor. Um, what is really a safe distance outside for, in your opinion? I mean, even outside, you know, I, every, we still recommend, um, you know, six feet between people. Um, just because you're outside doesn't mean you can pack everybody in like you normally would. Um, so uh, it's still six feet, you know, with even, you know, I would recommend still even with a mask um, uh, if people are stationary and, you know, if, if it's a really outside theater, you know, six feet should be okay to do, um, uh, as 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 long as all the other kind of measures are taken, you know, in place. Um, uh, the other thing which I, I forgot to mention, but I, I wanted to, I, I just wanted to say here before I forget, is that um, uh, for all the actors' side of it, and all the directors and everyone who's involved on a day-to-day -day basis on the rehearsal side, um, mandating testing I think is really important. Just uh, you know, weekly testing, going to a local one of the local um, uh, place in New York City or wherever you are that can do testing on a on a fairly rapid basis, a couple days turnaround. Some of them are longer now. Um, you know, we, we, our nanny had a contact with someone who was positive and it took her 12 days to get a test back, which doesn't really do anyone any good. They're getting better. Um, uh, most of the state-run facilities are running 40 hours. It's the Quest and the LabCorp CVS-run ones that are taking longer. So find one that has a good turnaround time. But like, I was just thinking the Songbird, the, the shoot in LA, they were, they had, I mean, it's obviously a huge budget. They had someone running tests for them uh, three times a week. Now, I know you can't do that, um, but uh, at least once a week on the actor side to know, so you can catch these things, uh, you know, as rapidly as possible. Anyway, I just wanted to say that before I forgot. Um, but on the testing side, I mean, I think outside, um, you know, you can, it's still six feet, you know, and if you can make them wear masks, wear a mask if possible. And just because I think it bears stating, um, if the audience is close to the actors, they're six feet of distance between actors also in masks. Just to be very clear, that's what we're talking about. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I realize that actors also are gonna be sharing a stage and in close quarters, uh, close contact, you know, just as part of their, as the plays. Um, uh, again, if they're, you know, if they're, 
if they're all together all the time, they have minimal contact with other people, you know, they've basically given in to this idea that this is my job for this time period and they're not associating with any other people. So their contact, you know, bubble is smaller, like, you know, the sports uh, teams are doing, um, you know, that's a pot, that's a good way of doing it. It's a positive way of doing it. And you can limit that contact. I mean, the whole idea is to limit your contact with people who may be at risk. That's it. Um, so the best possible limitation there you can, um, you know, and uh, you don't, we watched Hamilton the, the other day on, uh, and uh, I can't remember the actor's name, King George, who has a remarkable spittle, um, may not want to be in the front row of that show for a little while, but outside of that, it's okay. I know there's reports coming out now about vaccine trial lengths and that they need to do, uh, you know, person, try people trials. Do you want to throw out a timeline? <laughs> oh, for the trials? Uh, for the actual, like, distribution? Um, yes, sir. So the the trials are starting. There's a lot of phase ones that have already started um, or completed now. Um, you hear about the one that I'm on a paper will come out later today. Um, and uh, the phase two and phase three trials are starting now for uh, about a, three or four of them in the U.S., um, a couple more around the world. Um, so those trials are 30,000 people. So, you know, I don't know how many you get your actors in those trials, but I would say it's a good thing. Um, but the actual distribution of this, you know, will be a year from now. Um, you know, optimistically, you know, you, the, we, at the end of the year, we will have tri phase three trials that say this vaccine worked in X, X number of people, which is good. Um, uh, you know, beginning of, beginning of next year, late this year, sometime in that time frame. Um, but then getting a billion doses or 100 or 500 million doses out to a population takes a while. Um, so optimistically, next year at this time, though that there'll be you know tens, hundreds of millions of people in the U.S. dosed. I would say optimistically. Um, uh, I've always been telling people you know the goal would be that uh, September 1st of next year, when our kids go back or my kids go back to school, um, you know there's a vaccine that we can all have. That's the goal, uh, and I think that's pretty realistic. Uh, hopefully, it comes in sooner than that. Um, but getting you know a billion doses out to people is hard. And are you all at all um, like leery of the fact that it's moving kind of fast right now? Like, is that a concern? Sure. No, really good question. Um, so yeah, the, the one for the government's called Operation Warp Speed, which I realize if you are anywhere uh, um, cautious of vaccines, that may scare the bejesus out of you. Um, the, 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 the speed part of it is not in, um, uh, is not in the way that they're going about the trials in per se of like testing wise. The speed part is that normally you do a phase one and then you have to get, which is, so a phase one trial is, um, about 150 people, usually 200 people. Um, and that's just saying my vaccine is safe in those people and that's it. And then. Phase two is about um, uh, several thousand people, and you then do a dose ranging a study there. You add a little bit more per person, you know, in the in the in cohorts of people. And I have a bigger population. We say it's really safe, and uh, we get this amount of response of the antibodies. And then the phase three trial is where you do thirty thousand to fifty thousand people, and you say, okay, in this really large population where there's a lot of heterogeneity of between people, you pick different sites around the world or the country. Um, it works. Uh, X number of people respond well to this vaccine, whatever that response is, whether it's not getting sick, making antibodies, whatever that is. Um, 
the speed part of this is not in the time frame that each one of those steps work. The speed is that um, all of these companies are getting a billion, $2 billion at the front end. So they don't have to wait for the money at the, between each one of the steps. So usually at, after phase one, it, you know, phase one costs about, you know, two, a couple million dollars, say five, $2 million. And then phase two costs uh, $20 million. And so you have to get the money for the next thing by investors from the government. Um, and that takes, you know, a while. And then in phase three, you, and then you have to scale up your product and then to make all those doses. And then in phase three is, you know, hundred, it can be a hundred million dollars, $200 million um, with that many people. And you have to then scale up your product again to get to the next step and you have to get the money. So what the government's doing is front loading all of it and saying, here's a billion dollars, do your trial, make your product now. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work, but make it so you're ready and you can keep going once you hit the safeguards at every one of these steps. So that's the speed part. Um, and that's why it's gonna go faster than it would take 10 years or five years to do this normally. It's gonna take a year, which is amazing. But, um, uh, and I realize there's people that are worried about the speed of this and I totally buy it. Um, but I, uh, at least the company we're working with, Novavax, is um, you know all of the FDA safeguards, and we've had a dozen calls with FDA about this as well as they go through their vaccine process. It's all, um, they've all hit all these benchmarks and the benchmarks don't go away. Those, those, those guardrails don't leave. Great. Yeah. I was just making sure that like phases weren't truncated. Like I didn't understand that part, but no. No, there, I mean, there is people that are calling for basically um, just the other day, there was a big article where the scientist at Hopkins said, let's just skip phase three trials. We know that they're kind they're, they're safe in a hundred people. We have a big pandemic out there. Let's just go. Um, and he got, he retracted his article yesterday. Um, and I can see people thinking that, you know, it, I think it's not a movie, right? This is not contagion like the movie. There's not 50% of the people out there dying of this virus. If it was, all guard, all guardrails are off. Like then we're in a different realm. We're not there. Um, I realize there's huge economic and social dis, you know, uh, um, problems that are causing all of this. But it's, uh, it's, it's, it, we, it's all those pieces will still go through the the proper framework. Um, I certainly wouldn't take it now. I want to see it in 30,000 people before I do anything. So uh, I'm not jumping, jumping steps, I promise. Come on. All right, great. Um, so one of the other things that uh, one of our industry unions has been um, using as kind of a benchmark, speaking about um, mm -hmm. guardrails, is looking at cases in, um, that are reported cases that are um, identified and looking at the statistics put out sort of state by state and if they can get better data for smaller communities and using that as a part of the okay well in your region things are out of control or so can you talk just a little bit about how understanding the data that we're getting around testing and infection rates how that informs that kind of decision making process yeah, so, um, no, great question. And this is actually really, it's actually really important. So New York City had this obviously large surge, you know, an awful surge earlier this year. Um, the numbers in New York City are are really good. Um, you know, they're very low. The hospital setting is controlling the infection. The community is uh, more or less abiding by all the public self, public health guidelines, although I've seen pictures of people out and, you know, eating dinner and everything in the park and being a bit too close for my comfort. but 
everybody to their own. Um, uh, so absolutely, if you are in an area, if you're if if you're a theater and, and your um, and your rehearsals are in an area or a town or a county or a state where there is rampant infection, you have to be much more cautious than in places where the percentages are really low. Um, so that's a, a super um, important aspect of this. This is the idea for schools, right? It should be local. Um, it should be local uh, districts that decide whether they're going back to school or not because um, of localized spread and percentages. So um, the benchmark is basically a 5% positive rate um, for, uh, um, for testing. So the number, X number of people go into testing. If less than 5% are positive, um, that's, that seems to be the benchmark people are going with. I actually don't know where they got the benchmark from. I can't find real data. I've looked at the, been looking at this a lot. They haven't, it's just kind of a number that sounds good. Um, there's no real reason for 5%. Um, although that's pretty much what people are hitting. Like in Maryland now, it's been, even though we're on an uptick uh, at the moment, still the percentages are 5% positive. So 10,000 10, tests a day, 20,000 tests a day, 1,000 tests a day, whatever that number is. Um, uh, but if you're in an area where there is a lot of, you, you know, the, the area is doing really well in reducing the number of cases, um, uh, you shouldn't reduce the safeguards, but I think you should feel better at least about having, um, about maybe opening theater sooner than it, you were in a place, you know, in Florida or, you know, Arizona or Texas where it's kind of bonkers at the moment. So there's totally a world where one state can be like lit, back to normal, all good, and another state can be in dire straits. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, we're going to see these local flare-ups. I, I mean, the other thing is, is, is if your area is in a place where they say, you know, our cases are down, schools are going to open, like everybody follow the rules, don't mess up, but we can do this, we're doing good. Um, if those cases do tick up again, again, this is, you know, more of the being comfortable about telling people above you, you know, people who are in charge, like say, we're not doing, you know, like we got to shut, we got to shut it down, right? It's, you have to be willing to make these hard calls when, um, you know, based on the situation we're in. Um, I know it's super strange. It's crazy. Um, you know, it's different than just a hurricane coming through and saying, you know, I think we can make it in before the rain for the Saturday night show. It's, it's not, you know, it's not like that. It's not going to go away tomorrow. Um, uh, so we have to be willing to make these calls uh, based on real public health data. That's a great segue to another question about um, the public and data. I mean, are there things that you might recommend for us as industries or as even um, you know, just citizens in terms of pushing our civic leaders to ramp up testing again, because it feels to me like this benchmark of testing, but we're talking about tests that are, we're getting results 12 days out. How, you know, what's the efficacy on that data um, with that kind of turnaround time on testing and, and what recommendations do you have for us for pushing policy that helps move us closer to a, a safer, World. Yeah. So, um, I mean, I tend to trust the local public health officials and their testing numbers. Um, those generally, you know, in the vast majority of places, they are real numbers, um, and there's no fudging of data there. Um, the 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 goal it really is to have, you know, fast, you know, minutes to hours turnaround of testing. That's going to be the goal through the next 12 months. Um, you know, by the government across the country to to get this out there. Um, 
the more testing centers you can have that have these rapid response, rapid tests, the better. Um, that's the only way to really understand what's really going on. Um, uh, I mean, the other really important thing is once you're tested, you have to consider yourself positive until you're shown negative. And that's, most people don't do that um, unless they're scared of, you know, they're recognizing that they're scared because they really think they had a contact. Um, but uh, this is the good thing about having continuous testing. You know, if, um, if businesses, if, you know, your, your actors can get tested on a weekly basis and have, and then you can catch these things sooner. Um, they may not have symptoms, but then they're, you know, on Monday morning, they get their test and they're, they're positive. Um, then you minimize, but they're feeling fine. You minimize that spread to everyone else in your, you know, on the cast. And so all of those little bits really help minimize the spread. Um, and so the, the, you know, the, the, the faster and the more repeated testing you can do is going to be the benefit to everyone around you close, as well as your just wide, you know, community. You, if you don't know you're positive and you go out to dinner and you sit outside and you interact with a, with a, um, with a, a, uh, a waitress or a waiter or, you know, somebody at the food store, you know, you're spreading if you don't know, if you're positive and don't realize it. So all these little bits matter. I was just gonna ask, how reliable are the antibody tests? I know for a minute there, there were some, you know, they were less reliable or they were saying like two out of three might, might give you an actual um, legitimate result. Um, but in your experience and based on like where we are now, um, how's that looking? Yeah, no, good. So for the, so all the tests I've been talking about have been the nasal swabs. Uh, there actually is a saliva test that's working really well now too. Um, uh, it's a little less sensitive, but if you, the idea is if it's easier to do, people will do it more and it'll be faster. So that's another, but the blood test is different. So um, the antibody tests will test your blood um, uh, and they'll tell you whether you have antibodies to this virus or not. That's the goal of these antibody tests. Um, the ability for the, the, one of the questions that came out early on was how reliable are they? Are they really reporting, you know, any real numbers? Um, most of them don't give you a number. You get a plus or a minus, kind of like a pregnancy test, you know, line or no line, one line or two line kind of idea. They seem to be, there, there are FDA approved ones now. Um, someone on the market that were not FDA approved and they got pulled pretty rapidly. So all the ones that are out there are generally reasonably good. They should be at least if they're FDA approved. Um, the thing we don't know yet from those um, tests is they don't mean that you're protected from this virus. So it's great for people to know if they've, you know, if they think they were infected in March because they got, you know, they were in New York City and they got sick. And then um, uh, it just gives them comfort to know whether they were infected or not, just to get it, their peace of mind if they're positive or negative. Um, but it doesn't mean that you're protected from ever getting this again. We just don't know that. Uh, I think we will eventually once more data is done and more of these um, more uh, large, large uh, hospitals do real kind of quantitative tests. So you get a number on how much antibody you have at one time. And then to know, to track those people over time to say what percentage above this number got infected again versus below this number got infected again. So that's the number that we'll need. And the, the vaccine studies, this is what you're going to follow the vaccine studies as well. Um, so it, it doesn't, it, it's, it's, it's a good thing to know if you think you were infected, but it certainly doesn't give you um, any um, ability to start not wearing a mask, to stop not social distance, to do any of the other regular public health precautions until we really understand what the hell those tests really mean. Um, one of the things that we had talked about as a cohort is also thinking about uh, 
not contact tracing in terms of people, but contact tracing in terms of physical objects, right? In the theater, we use something called props and if that, you know, and limiting the spread in that way. Can you just talk a little bit about what the data is telling us about the virus living on objects, different kinds of objects, clothing even, right? We come to the theater in our clothes, we change into a costume. Can you just talk about some of those things that we should be thinking about? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, we didn't talk contact tracing before, um, uh, but in that part of it, it's super important. Again, it's the same idea that if your actors are positive um, or they're symptomatic, you need to know who around them they've been in contact with. You know, clearly the other actors, but whoever else around them. So that's a whole contact tracing part. But for the physical object part, um, we know the virus generally lives on most surfaces for 48 to 72 hours. Um, the data definitely shows that droplets and aerosol is a much uh, higher probability of you being infected than it is off of surfaces. So they're called fomites on surface, like the droplets that you spit out, um, they would breathe out normally from singing or talking. Um, when they land on a surface, um, uh, they're in mucus and, you know, slobber. Uh, they, uh, they generally live for 48 to 72 hours, depending on the surface. Uh, a little bit longer on hard surfaces, a little less on, um, on clothing and fabric. Um, so yeah, I think that fomite, that, that contact is important there for props, um, uh, especially repeated contact of things, whether it's, you know, a table or a chair or whatever the prop is. Um, so any kind of disinfectant you can do on those, um, you know, hard surfaces you can spray with cleaner, um, 70% ethanol works, uh, really any kind of standard Lysol, those kind of cleaners work, um, as much as you can spray down, um, uh, either repeatedly during the day, if it's a high contact area, or at least once a day, those will also minimize the spread of uh, these droplets to other people and the virus to other people. Um, so I realize it's harder some services than other, but as much as much as you can do to kind of to disinfect those air, those those um, surfaces, the better. I mean, I think in that context, I think that when you're thinking about you know, I don't know what your shows look like, but when you're hopefully I will see them. Um, but when you're the thinking about what you're doing, I mean, having some of this idea in mind, right? I mean, if the actors don't have to be so close to each other um, and you can make the scene so they are distant, you know, it doesn't have to be apparent that they're on opposite sides of the stage talking to each other in some kind of intimate conversation. But if you can, you know, stage them, I don't know, I'm not a director, but if, I imagine that if you could stage them, you know, apart as much as you could, um, you know, maybe less props than normal, those kind of things can all benefit um, your cast in, in containing, you know, if someone gets sick, you can contain the spread that way. Um, and, and all the people that are sitting there too, right? They're not gonna be on stage, but they're obviously gonna be around your actors. So is it true that fewer people touching an object, the better? Sure, I mean, if one of them is positive, you don't wanna spread it to everyone else. So, um, uh, you know, I would think, especially for the people coming in, you know, uh, like in our, on our floor, I have the bathrooms propped open, so you don't have to touch the door when you go to the bathroom, right? It seems silly, but it's a little thing that now that doorknob or that panel, no one touches. Um, so all those high contact areas for at least, especially your your patrons coming in, um, you know, walk through. Like if you push a door open, is that propable? Um, if you're, uh, you know, armrests on chairs, those kind of things that are, you know, common areas where people get, you know, drinks or food during their during the show. Um, you know, any place they're going to congregate, right? Make it so they can't congregate. Limit, 
you know, it's limiting people is important too, but limiting where they can congregate, you know, at intermission or wherever, all of those bits can add to the safety of your, of your, your, uh, you know, your patrons. I, I think the important thing, I mean, just like other schools and stuff opening up, if no one is following the rules, if one, if one, if one theater doesn't follow the rules, it messes it up for everybody. I can, I can, you can see it happening. Um, and so as best as you can communicate to all your other friends who are in the industry, that these, there has to be best practices that you can do. Um, it's going to be better for everyone. That's what I mean. I think that that's, it's going to be important to, to show successes along the way. And also, I mean, I'm obviously not plugged into the theater industry to communicate with the other, the other friends that are in the industry to find out what they are doing and what is successful, what works, what doesn't work, you know, be willing to, to modify your, um, the way that you're doing this along the way that, things that you hear may work or may not work or things that you notice, wait, like we can't put that thing there because everybody stands there at intermission or um, how do we get people outside faster or um, can we load people in the theater in a more um, uh, spread out manner so they're not all bunched up, with, you know, whatever that thing is to figure out how to do that safer. Um, you know, be willing to make these kind of modifications that you go is, is the way to make it happen, I think. There is a movement in, in the theater community here around healthy buildings, and ART yeah. in Massachusetts has led this conversation with, with researchers at Harvard. And what they're coming up with is that our buildings are just archaically out of step with ventilation systems. And so since Signe asked you about outdoor ventilations, I just, I, my thought is, uh, you're telling her she doesn't need fans outside, and it sounds like inside, no amount of fans is going to fix it. <laughs> so, um, yeah. is there? I think it's. Um, I think so. This is an engineering question, which I'm definitely not an engineer. Um, there are people who work on um, on uh, kind of environmental engineering for this exact purpose. Um, I mean, cruise ships are the like worst example of this, right? That's there's two cruise ships from I think Norway or something in the, in Europe. And they automatically had cases already. Like, just stop with the cruise ships, right? Um, <laughs> but I think that you have to think about it. Like, you're you're in a room. You're in a big room. Um, uh, you have yes. I mean, they can be large spaces, uh, and there's huge volume there. But you that I don't I don't know what the amount of, of circulation you need or the amount of new air flow you need. The room cha air changes per hour or minute is what we call it in, the, in our lab. Um, uh, needs to be for those kind of spaces, but they. I can't imagine they're up to what they need to be. Um, so that's a really an engineering question. There, there, there are ways of um, of retrofitting HEPA filters, you know, filtration, air filtration into these spaces, putting up mobile filtration systems in these in these places in the theaters. I mean, they're not quiet, so I don't know how you do a play in the midst of having twenty giant air filters running uh, in the room. Um, that's another level of difficulty in these things, but. Um, uh, Taylor's yeah, just I, I don't know. Say that. Taylor. What? <laughs> I'm getting stressed. I'm getting stressed. <laughs> I'm just like, yo, I'll see y'all in 2024 at this rate. I'm like, <laughs> forever. We're done. It's over. <laughs> I mean, I think you have to be, I think this is the creative part. I mean, I think there, I, I know, I don't know the answer. I don't know the answer of how to do this on some kind of that, in that level of a, of a theater. Um, uh, but, um, there, you know, there has to be some creative way of putting things on and being safe. Um, 
I, I certainly don't know how to do it inside of a theater like that. I mean, I think being outside as much as you can is good. Um, you know, uh, but you know, minimizing congregation of people, you know, at the breaks and at you know, coming in and leaving. Um, I don't know. It's all yeah. hard. It's all really well, hard. I, I think part of the reason we wanted to speak with you today is this is going to require some creative solutions and we are an artist led industry and the artist who lead that more often than not is the director. And so if we can sort of begin that conversation in a way it's currently not happening, um, Christina may not have to wait till 2024. You know, we may be able to figure out ways to make our work both healthy and creatively stable. Yeah, I mean, that, you know, I always tell my friends here, like the issue is de-risking your situation, right? At what level, and so at, at where, how can you minimize risk at all these steps, right? I mean, min, the minimus, the, the, the lowest level would be just not having a show, right? And if, if that's not a possibility, if that's not an answer you want, which I understand, then it's what level, what are the, what are the layers of things that you can do to minimize the risk for both the actors, actresses, and the people watching? Um, and so it's not a it's not a it's not a one fit scenario for everyone. Um, there's not one answer for every theater. You know, every space is going to be um, uh, is going to be unique in how to manage this. Um, if I had all the time in the world, and I would start a company and, and hire people that are uh, you know airflow engineers to do this. And I think that, you know for every, it could be law firm. You know, I mean, you have the same problem in schools and law firms and um, office buildings. You know, and, and food stores, right? I mean. This is all the same problem. Um, and I think that we're still in the beginning of figuring out what the right way is to do, what the right way to do this is. Um, and there will be successes and there will be failures. And it's learning and moving when you, moving the, your, you know, what you're, you're currently doing, depending on what works and what doesn't work as you find out for other people. That's all. You, you're, you're a business built on community. And I think that is, um, I think we need that more than anything right now. And I think they're, they're you know, have to be creative in ways to make it work. So um, I wish all of you luck. I, I, I hope everyone stays safe and um, good luck and break a leg. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. Bye-bye. Sure. Thank you.